Stella! Stella! Alright everyone, welcome back to the Royville Movie House. We have just got out of the theater and all of my popcorn is eaten. So let's get into our latest feature, a good movie this time, A Streetcar Named Desire. I just wanted to start off tonight by saying, please excuse our sniffles. We are fighting something off in the Roy household. So if you hear sniffles, coughing, or sneezing, just know we're here with you anyway. The, well, th the things we do. All right. So that being said, let's get into our review. All right. So A Streetcar Named Desire was made in 1951. It was written by Tennessee Williams, both the screenplay and the original play that the screenplay is based on, with some help from Oscar Saul for an adaptation for the big screen. It was directed by Elia Kazan. Um, it starred Vivian Lee as Blanche Dubois, Marlon Brando as Stanley Kowalski, Kim Hunter as Stella Kowalski, Carl Malden as Harold Mitch Mitchell. It had won four Oscars for its year. Vivian Lee for Best Actress in a Leading Role, Kim Hunter for Best Actress in a Supporting Role, and Carl Malton, Malden, sorry, I keep making it a T, Malden as a Supporting Actor. It also won for Best Art Direction slash Set Direction for a Black and White Movie. Um, the synopsis, according to IMDb, reads... Disturbed Blanche Dubois moves in with her sister in New Orleans and is tormented by her brutish brother-in-law while her reality crumbles around her. I figured that we would start this time, instead of starting with characters, we would start with the plot. Because with this movie, if we don't talk about the plot, we're going to get into it in the characters. Because this was a character piece. It wasn't anything exciting. There was no real like fight scene type action stuff going on. There weren't huge world changing revelations happening. It's kind of a small movie. So the movie starts with Blanche arriving in New Orleans and having to ride the streetcar that has the name Desire on it that drives by her sister's house. The only time in the whole movie you see this streetcar and they name the movie after it. I'm just saying. But there was a big monologue at the end where Blanche goes on and on about how it was named Desire. That's true. And the whole movie kind of has this whole desire undertone. Well, yeah. So it's appropriate that they live along the desire line, I guess. I don't know what that would be. I don't know how streetcars are named. Um, and if that's an actual real thing or something that Tennessee Williams made up so that he could have a clever way of tying the overarching sort of theme of this play into something concrete in the play. Um, so she arrives, tells her sister that they've lost their country house, which I can't remember the name of. Good Lord, why can't I remember Belle the name? Belle Reeve? Yes, Belle Reeve. Uh, she's 
Belrive. Because it's the name of the insane asylum in DC Universe. That's how I remember. <laughs> well, maybe they took it from this play. Or maybe Bell Reeve's an actual place. I don't know. But they've lost their country home. Um, obviously, Stella and Blanche come from the southern arist- aristocracy. Uh, but a family that's fallen on extremely hard times because Stella and Blanche are the only two left. Uh, Blanche was left back in Mississippi, which is where Belle Reeve is, to take care of mom and dad and other ailing family members, I'm assuming, because she kept talking about them dying, like left and right, dying, dying, dying. Death is expensive was one another big monologue that Blanche talked about. Yeah, we don't know exactly why, um, but they allude to them having a big family and they all passed away in various ways. So Blanche comes to stay with Stella um, in her hard times because the bank, I'm assuming, repossessed Belle Reeve because they talked about the bank when Stanley demanded the papers. So Stella explains to Stanley what exactly happened and why Blanche needs to stay with them for a little while. Stanley doesn't quite believe it. He thinks that Blanche is trying to cheat Stella because he needs to see the papers. He needs to see the paperwork. Where's the bill of sale because of the Napoleonic Code? He goes on about the Napoleonic Code quite a bit. Basically that anything that's the wife's is the husband's and vice versa. Um, And it was a big thing in the beginning because... Stanley kept talking that the Napoleonic Code's a thing and he doesn't want to get on the hook for anything through her sister and it bring, he brings it up quite a bit in the first half hour of the movie and then you really don't hear for about it again. Pretty much. Uh, Stella's pregnant, tells Stanley not to tell Blanche yet because Blanche is in a delicate state and Blanche doesn't need to know. And then what does, tell, what does Stanley do, Steve? Yeah, he tells her. He had one job. Yeah, well, you know. But anyway, so Blanche is happy, I think, in her over-the-top sort of. Blanche is extremely melodramatic. She has, she's neurotic in that 1951 sort of way where she talks very, very fast and you don't quite know what's real and what's not and what's her actually genuinely lying about and what she's actually deluded herself into thinking. So anyway, as the movie goes on, Blanche falls further and further into her delusions. Neuroses. um, Dementia. In the process. Insanity. Insanity. In the process, she does um, start dating Mitch, who is Stanley's best friend. And they seem to be getting on okay. But again, Mitch is just kind of a normal guy. And she is so over-the-top melodramatic. Um, Blanche was a teacher, an English teacher, so she knows a lot of poetry. And she told Stella that she voluntarily left the school before the spring term started. 
And she's going to stay in New Orleans with Stella and Stanley until she can figure out if she wants to continue to teach or not. Turns out, through the whole play, or sorry, I keep I keep referring it to as a play, but what we watched today was the movie. Through the whole movie, Stanley is doing investigative work on Blanche because a guy who knew Blanche came into the bar that he frequents. So... Turns out that in order to pay for all this, these funerals in Belle Reve, Stella wasn't exactly doing an honest woman's work. Is that how she paid for it? I thought that basically the fortune was eaten up and she had to survive. Maybe that's it. But she... I'm being delicate. She, um... Basically, she turned tricks uh, at a hotel and fell in lust or whatever with one of her students and got basically drummed out of town. And that's why she's in New Orleans. Stella doesn't believe Stanley because, well, Blanche is her sister. And I think through the whole thing, like, it, Steve said it about halfway through. He was like, but that's my sister. Like... You can't just expect somebody to turn on their family like that. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but anyway, as things get worse and worse... But her sister was batshit crazy. That is true. She was. In Stanley's defense. She was. He was... I think the... I'll get into it in a little bit, but... Um, I genuinely think that we're led to believe that Blanche goes off the deep end because of Stanley bullying her. Is what I think the play is supposed to be telling us. But I'm not sure that that holds up. I don't know if that's what the movie was telling us, but it it didn't, it didn't help. It didn't help, but I think she would have went certifiable the longer I think it was just inevitable she was falling into it it might have just maybe quickened the pace with Stanley's the way Stanley reacted to her neuroses um Stanley tells Mitch what he's found out to stop his best friend from marrying Blanche because he proposed and on Blanche's birthday, he decides that that's the day to tell Mitch. And that's the day to have Mitch not show up so that a big fight ensues. Like, kind of all hell breaks loose at the house. And still has to go to the hospital because she's close to having the baby. And Stanley comes back and pretends basically like, sort of like nothing happened, but not really. It was more of a sort of olive branch at the time because his wife's in the hospital having his baby and... He He was excited about that, so... Not that he was going to let bygones be bygones, but things were kind of going his way at the moment. So he wasn't going to go... Blanche. But while they were gone at the hospital, Mitch came. And this is the moment where things shoved her off the deep end. Is Mitch came back 
and demanded to see her in cold light because he, she never would say how old she was because she was sensitive about that. And they got into an altercation and Blanche at the end, it was odd because he kissed her after they basically were like breaking stuff left and right. Well, I think at that point he knew in his mind what she was. And so he was interested in her physically because he thought maybe that that's what she would offer him. But the whole, because they were going to get married and it was going to be, she was going to get what she wanted and she was going to have a man to protect her and care for her. Even though he was common, because that was the thing in the movie, that these men were common and her and her sister were of the aristocracy, of the rich. Um, so they were somewhat better, but she was going to get what she wanted. Well, at that point, everything had fallen out, and so Mitch just kind of wanted to use her, I think, as what she was. But the whole marriage thing was off the table, and then it just kind of... The moment where she... Kept exploding. Totally cracked was when Mitch actually said, I'm not marrying you, you're not clean enough. Yeah. Yeah. And she basically told Mitch that he had to leave before she started screaming. He didn't believe her at first, and she started getting going into hysterics, and he ran away, and she screamed and screamed, and the police came. And then that's when Stanley came back. Um, but Blanche had opened her steamer trunk, which was a big point of contention earlier because she had, like, furs and jewels and pearls and whatnot. But she was rich at one point. So these were just the things that she had saved. But she had on a ball gown and her rhinestone tiara and had said something about to Stanley about receiving a wire from an old beau of hers that she was going to go on a Caribbean cruise on his yacht. And then as reality started slipping away from her more and more and more, she did say that Mitch had come by and she kicked him out and he came back with a dozen roses and begged her forgiveness and Stanley started to see that she was really, really falling. So Stanley was basically like, did you actually get the telegram and some beau wanted to take you on a cruise? Or did actually none of that happen? Yes, it was like that moment in Family Guy, only not nearly so comical when Brian was like, did you actually read that in a book, Peter? Or was it nothing? Um... <coughs> But in the process of it all coming apart, she started attacking Stanley and he started attacking back. He basically was trying to rip the veneer off of her holier than thou sort of stance with him. And I don't know at the end what that scene really meant. Basically, she had like a broken bottle and she was basically like going to cut him. And then Stanley says something to the effect of, all right, it, you know, this is how it's going to be. Basically, let's dance. 
and there was him grabbing her and there was a little tussle and then a mirror behind her cracked and then that scene shifts to a new scene so you're not really sure exactly what happened there i assumed they just got into a big fight um nothing more physical or intimate than that ellen thought that because of uh, something that um, Stella says later that she had to either believe Blanche or believe Stanley to stay with him. And Ellen thought maybe that it was a rape scene of some sort, which I really didn't get that. Yes, Stanley's not the greatest guy He's kind of a shithead at times, but I would not have thought that that was anything uh, like a rape scene or anything. Uh, I just thought that they got into a tussle and he, I mean, because you saw him in earlier in the film hitting a woman. He hit his wife once again, kind of a dirtbag. Um... But to say that it was kind of a rape scene, I just didn't get it. I just didn't. Well, the thing is, because it was so ambiguous at the end of it, it's up to the audience to decide whether Blanche, like this was in Blanche's head, or if this actually happened, or if it was a combination of all of that. We don't know. That's true, though, now that I think about it, because you said that the mirror was fixed in the next scene in the next scene so was this actually something that happened or and especially to the extent of what we see on film or is it just blanche's crazy recollections of what happened and because the mirror was not broken i honestly think that the stuff that she says Stanley did, the extent of that scene, didn't happen. Because at that point, at that scene, after Mick, Mitch. Mitch left, Stanley gets home, I th- Blanche has lost it. She well, is the, done. The mirror could just symbolize her shatter, like her psyche. Yes, her like, shattered yeah. mind, yeah. So, um, deep, very deep stuff. Not about streetcars. <laughs> so the last scene is an, uh, a poker night. And Blanche is in the bathroom once again. and They're coming to pick her up. To take her to the funny farm. I'm getting to that. And they're having a poker night. I'm getting to That's that. That's what I was like. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> poker night, funny farm. So um, Stella and the baby are back. Stella's taking care of the baby. The upstairs neighbor is there to um, check on Stella and Blanche. At least that's what we're led to believe at the beginning of the scene. She's asking how Blanche is. Well, Blanche, Blanche, in order to calm her nerves, takes hot baths. So she was taking one of her hot baths and had shampooed her hair. And Stella told the upstairs neighbor to tell her how nice she looks when she gets out. And so they're getting her dressed. She thinks she's going on this cruise that she's made up. 
And yes, as Steve said, the people come to take her to the funny farm. Um, I shouldn't say it like that. That's really, but the people come to take her to the hospital, to the, to the insane asylum. And Stella's struggling with this. This is her sister. And yes, this is where that line happens. Uh, Stella says something to the effect of, in order to stay with Stanley, I, I can't believe her story. Because of whatever Blanche told Stella happened. So they get her um, into the car. Blanche says one of the most... The second most uh, famous line from the movie, which is she's come to rely on the kindness of strangers. And the doctor escorts her out as if she's the Queen of England. And they get into the car and they drive away, uh, leaving Stella and Stanley and Stella really resentful of her husband, whether it's because she's resentful because he made her send her sister away or because he's actually kind of a wife-beating dirtbag, and now she has a baby to look after. But basically, we're left with her leaving Stanley and saying it's for the last time. Um, and that's the end of the movie. So, like I said, it's not earth-shattering action. It's and it really only deals with a small group of people. Um, I mean, I'm. Yeah. I mean, honestly, you know, this is very pivotal for the characters in the movie, but you go, for example, it's set in New Orleans, you go two blocks away from this, nobody knows what's going on. Except for that hot dog salesman. Well, except for the hot dog salesman, but, I mean, <laughs> you go two streets down and nobody, I mean, so this is definitely not earth shattering, this is a character piece about basically four to five people right um so that being said that's the plot beginning to end um the characters vivian lee did a really great job uh with blanche uh the problem that i had with it is that this plays a family melodrama the melodrama has to come from somewhere and pretty much in this story it's blanche Blanche is over the top. And it's because she's losing it. it. She's losing her mind and she's desperately grabbing on to whatever dignity she still has. Well, do you think it's over the top, though, too? Because it's a movie from the 40s? The 50s. 50s? Well, I mean, even that, though. The acting is different, obviously. Mm -hmm than a modern movie. So do you think part of that over-the-topness is the time it was made? Oh, it's very possible. It's very possible. But she has these grandiose monologues. You can definitely tell that this is a stage play that was adapted for the big screen because they left some of those really big, dramatic, mellow mm. uh, monologues in that happen on stage all the time, and I wouldn't even blink an eye at that. But in, right, in a right. movie, it's not that they're out of place, but they're... Unless you're watching a Shakespearean movie, they're really not used that much now. Mm, yeah, true. I mean, you get the let's do it for the Gipper pep speech and all of that, but it's usually, I don't know, those speeches are usually like, what, four or five lines long. These were full-on monologues, probably full pages at a time. Um, 
But Vivian Lee did a really great job, I thought. She was sympathetic to a... As much as she could be. Well, she was sympathetic to me until you really started to see what the picture was. Um, but then she became sympathetic again based off of the extent that she had... Her mind had started to work against her. Yeah. Um, I thought especially the scene with Mitch and then the scene with Stanley, the scene before Mitch even gets there and she's kind of, or after Mitch leaves and she, she had basically lost her faculties. I mean, at that point, there was no, I think, going back for her. And you really saw it in the scene. Like, I did not realize how drawn in... And this movie is from the 50s. I'm, I'm a modern guy. I, I have trouble watching older movies. Now, granted, that being said, some of my favorite movies are older movies. But there's definitely a difference in the film and the way people acted back then. But I was really being drawn into Vivian Lee's performance and the kind of peek into what's going on in Blanche's head at that moment. I was really drawn into that scene. And especially between uh, Vivian Lee and Marlon Brando when Stanley comes in, and just seeing, you know, her reactions and the, how the scene plays out, and especially after Ellen and I are kind of talking about it, seeing that it might not have been real. What we were seeing might have just been in her mind, and it is a very powerful scene of mental disability, I think. And I don't want to try to make a light of that um, at all, seeing how it's just a film, but it really it really drew me in. It really drew mm-hmm. me in. And I don't know what else more to say about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. Um, I did have a hard time until they started maybe not doing her makeup. Because I had a hard time seeing her as being old or anybody who needed to be sensitive about her age until mm. she, until basically the, that scene, mm-hmm. until her birthday. Uh, I think that they either did minimal makeup on Vivian, so we're seeing almost her naked face when she's under the light, or they didn't do some sort of eye makeup. Um, not that Vivian Lee at that time was an old woman, she wasn't, but I mean, Seeing any woman in harsh light or anybody in harsh light is going to emphasize any sort of flaw in their face. And when Mitch demanded to see her under the bare bulb and like they showed her face, I was like, oh, and not because she was hideous, but like you could see the lines around her eyes. You could see the stress marks and you could see that the bags under her eyes and stuff. So I thought they did a good job of illustrating what she was trying to portray to the world and then what she really was. Cause that's, that's the, those are the series of scenes where she's kind of stripped bare to what she actually is, as opposed to what she wanted everybody else to see her as. 
Um, moving on to Stanley. Um, well, before we leave Blanche, okay, there is the uh, flower woman. That was so weird. Yeah, there was a woman selling flowers um, for basically funerals or flowers for the dead. Yeah, that's what she was... Um, and she had come up in two scenes. She'd come up to the door and knocked on the door in one of the scenes and Blanche answered. And then there was another scene. I think it's the scene where Mitch Mm -hmm. was there and he had ran out. Or he was still there. He was still there. I think that she was about ready to do this. The Mary yeah, Lee and all right. that. Well, she opens the door and this woman is just across the street kind of walking towards her. Selling these flowers for the dead. And I think that was also kind of a very big was. And once again, was this woman even real? Was this woman even there to me? Yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe. Or maybe not, because, I mean, she was hearing music, she, I mean, like, she was hearing music, and we didn't realize that it wasn't, that it wasn't either part of the score or maybe happening, because they are in New Orleans, yeah, and music I mean, is everywhere. They were in the quarter. It's true, it's true. <laughs> I mean, my mind's being blown right now with all of the uh, subtext <laughs> of this movie, but, all right, so, I uh, just wanted to mention that before we moved on to Stanley, but Marlon Brando. Um, We're going to be talking a lot about Marlon Brando in our journey. There are four movies with Marlon Brando on this list, even just the top 50 as we've limited it to ourselves for for now. We have this one on the waterfront and both Godfathers Part 1 and 2. All right, so young, attractive Marlon Brando. Let's do it. He's... I am shocked every time I see young Marlon Brando by how attractive he is because... I, I was introduced to Marlon Brando in The Island of Dr. Moreau, and he is not attractive. He's not an attractive old man. No, oh, well, I was introduced to Marlon Brando as Superman's dad, so... He was kind of majestic in there. Yeah, <laughs> kind of kingly there. Um, but he is, an, he is a very attractive man. And that's one of the first things that comes up about Stanley in the movie. When Blanche comes and, and hunts Stella down... They're at a bowling alley where Stanley is bowling with his team. And that's one of the first things that Stella says. Stanley's over there and he's in a fight. <laughs> which is, uh, which is, in, which is uh, foreshadowing for Stanley's character. But he's in a fight. And Blanche asks, is it the one with that's making the ruckus? She's like, yes, isn't he good looking? Don't, they don't talk about him as a person. Yes, isn't he good looking? Well, uh, Kowalski is his last name. He is of Polish descent. This comes up often between the sisters. Well, from Blanche. Stanley's just a working dude. He's a common man. That comes up quite a bit. He works at a factory? Something like that, yeah. Um, they show him at work once. But they show him coming home from work quite a bit. Uh, so he comes home from work and his wife beater. Basically, you know it's hot in New Orleans because Marlon Brando's wearing a tank top. 
The women aren't sweating. He is. He is a lot. It almost made me believe they put Marlon Brando in the scene. I, I did say this to Steve, that he was just there to look pretty, basically. But that was before a lot of this other stuff that we talked about in the plot came up. That was before he started doing the investigations and started having his interactions with Stella. And I know I said earlier that he's a bully. He sort of is, but Blanche is a bully too to him. Like she's hitting all of the buttons that make him basically trying to make him less of a man in Stella's eyes. Agreed. There is the, the first poker scene, which I glossed over in the plot when we were discussing that where Blanche just gets it. It's like a couple days after Blanche comes to new Orleans, Stella takes her out to the show. (coughs) Actually, this is where Stanley told Blanche that she was pregnant, that Stella was pregnant. Um, takes her out to a show and some drinks because he's having the guys over for poker night. Well, It's Mitch and two other guys, Pablo and the upstairs neighbor, which I can't remember his name off the top of my head. The only reason I remember Pablo's name is because it's one of the most racist names to just randomly name a Mexican character in your show. Okay. (laughs) Well, it's really stereotypical. Maybe it's not racist, but it's a very stereotypical name. Um, He doesn't have much character. He just sits at the poker table. So the girls come home after they had their night out and they go into the other quote unquote room, which is divided by a curtain. So it's not really another room. And they were gossiping and giggling like sisters and friends would do. And Stanley tells them to shut up and Blanche turns on the music and Stanley comes in and turns off the music. Uh, Mitch comes back to talk, uh, And to use the restroom, but he's mostly curious about Blanche. And this is where Mitch and Blanche sort of get together. Um, Blanche turns the music back on. Stanley comes back and grabs the radio and throws it through a window. Because that escalated quickly. And (laughs) basically, Stella tells Stanley that he needs to back off because she's going to talk in her own home. And he takes her out and out to the front porch, basically, because that's where she was running to and wails on her. And the guys wail on him, like basically knock him unconscious. Yeah, the guys pull him off, kind of uh, knock him out, take him into the bathroom, wake him back up again. But that's basically you see Stanley's character. Um there are some parts where you see he's kind of a rough and tumble guy. Um, he is aggressive. He is somewhat angry in the beginning. You can tell that he cares for Stella. You can tell that Stella cares for Stanley. Um, but it is very a... Toxic. Toxic relationship, yes, yes. Um, but really... The the main two characters, the main interaction with the characters is Stanley and Blanche, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Stella is is kind of the 
moon that revolves around those two characters. Yeah, she's trying to keep her sister happy and trying to keep her husband happy, and she can't keep both of them happy at the same time. Because they, she just can't. Um, but Stanley, that that's also what we were talking about. The poker night is also the famous scene with his torn shirt out, fresh out of the shower. So he's all soaking wet with his torn shirt. So his rippling back muscles are, are on display more and more as the scene goes on. And he goes out to the courtyard and yells up to the upstairs neighbor where Stella is stashed. And yells... Stella! And yells it over and over again. And we've heard it a million times. And it was almost comical to see the real thing. And that makes me sad. Because it's become so cliche. And I'm watching the first time it happened on film. And I'm laughing. Yeah, it definitely wasn't very emotional. All I saw was... um, Julie Louise Dreyfus from Seinfeld going... Stella! At some party. So, yeah, it uh, did not have the impact that probably it originally did in the 50s. And it was, I was a little sad that I didn't have that initial reaction to, you know, the, the emotion to it. But Stella comes down and goes back to Stanley, which is setting up for the last scene. But basically, Stanley, he does care about his wife. He wants it to be just them. He wants them to have a good time together. He wants them to be happy together. And he can't see them being happy together while Blanche is there. So he's trying to get rid of Blanche. And the guy who comes into the bar happens to give him the ammunition he needs to get rid of Blanche. And he jumps all over that. And is obviously a very resourceful man. Because this was at a time where there was no internet. So he was on the phone a lot. He was talking to people that he knew because Stanley knew a lot of people. He knew a lawyer. He knew a guy who was in the furrier business. He knew a guy who was a jeweler. Yeah, it seemed like it was really, really easy for him to dig up information on Blanche, but, you know, whatever. It was just part of the movie. Um, Moving on to Stella Kowalski, we already kind of said that. Like, she was kind of the... Actually, she was kind of the... I hate to call people character uh, character devices, or not character devices, plot devices, but still it kind of was. She was the thing that brought the two forces that were Blanche and Stanley together. And not in that they got together and they were romantically involved, but like they were in the same room and they lived in the same place and therefore they were, they were bound to clash and it was because Stella was her sister and Stella was married to Stanley and it's not that Stella didn't have a character she was tough and she she had left that uh, aristocracy stuff behind her she seemed pretty common as well quote-unquote common it, she enjoyed being at the bowling alley she was drinking soda pop she was you know like it, it wasn't she had left behind her the snooty upbringing that Blanche was desperately trying to hang on to. Uh, Whether Stella did that out of self-preservation or if it was a choice because she had met Stanley and Stanley was good looking and showed interest in her. I don't know. Um, So that's Stella. And then there's Mitch who's just... Mitch is the, the guy in the group that's the nice guy. 
And I don't mean nice guy in quotes, like wears a fedora and lives in his mom's basement. But he... He did live with his mom, though. But well, she was ailing, so... He was taking care of his sick mother. Yes. Um, which is different than living in mom's basement because you can't find a job or whatever. Well, true. Um, he was... He was the sensitive one of the group. He was the antithesis to Stanley. Stanley was a brute. Mitch was not. And Mitch fell in love with Blanche. But then he got his heart broken because he double-checked all of the stuff that Stanley found out about Blanche and found it all to be true. And she lied to him. And she broke his heart. And she was not a clean woman at that point. So Mitch ended up making one dick move. Whereas Stanley made a bunch of them. So, eh. so anyway, those are the four main characters that basically the plot revolves around. But the main two, Steve's right, the main two characters the plot revolved around were Blanche and Stanley. So, all of that being said, I want to say that Vivian Lee, Kim Hunter, and Carl Malden all deserved the Oscars they got. Marlon Brando did get a nomination, but I, it must have been tough that year because he did not get the he didn't get the win, and he did a really good job. Um, that's just my opinion. So, what do you think? Does it deserve to be on this list? Well, I don't. I mean, out of all the movies that have ever been made, I don't know if it deserves to be on the list. However. I will say I thoroughly enjoyed the movie for what it was. I, I was a little... I didn't know anything about A Streetcar Named Desire except the scene. Stella! Stella! So I thought it was basically a movie about some guy that falls in love with a woman and something happens and he fights for her. That's honestly what I thought the movie was. And I was totally, totally wrong. Um, I did really enjoy the character moments, uh, for Blanche and seeing a glimpse into her psychosis. I thought it was well done, um, especially for that time period. Now, granted, once again, I don't know much about, you know, the real world uh, aesthetics of disabilities and how they were treated in that time period, but I thought it was a very good character piece for Blanche and seeing her devolve. And honestly, I would like to watch the movie again, knowing what it's about, so I could kind of see those moments and get a better picture of what was going on with her. Kind of more analyze those moments now, knowing what I know about the movie. Um, I thought the interaction, Marlon Brando was, was very good. Like Ellen said, I thought uh, he was very good. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, the interaction between him and Blanche was interesting. Um, 
it didn't seem like it was kind of a one-trick pony. He did have an idea of what he wanted his life to be, and he had to deal with, in his own way, uh, that being disrupted, um, and deal with basically how to how to get rid of that, and him being who he was, being, as we have said multiple times, being the kind of douchebag uh, uh, asshole that he was, he didn't do that well. Once again, I don't think um, Blanche breaking was because of Stanley, but I do think that he might have helped quicken um, the severity of her psychosis. Um, but once again, I thought it was a very interesting film. I thought it tackled an issue, uh, very well. And I would once again really like to examine the film again. Um, for example, you know, obviously the bad movies you see once and you really don't probably ever care to see again. Um... So, so yeah, yeah, I, I think this movie deserves accolades, and I would like to see it again. Top 50 of all time? I'm not exactly sure about that, but I agree it was a very good movie. All right. I think that it's on the 50, at, at the top of the top, you know, at the top of the list, or... It's not at the top. That's Citizen Kane, and we'll tackle that later. But um, in the top 50, as opposed to just in the top 100, or just a good movie that has longevity, I think part of why it's on the list is it's written by Tennessee Williams. Tennessee Williams, Arthur Miller, and Eugene O'Neill are the three playwrights that, when you study both English and drama, those are the three playwrights that developed the storytelling styles of the 20th century storytelling on stage. Arthur Miller with Death of a Salesman in the Crucible, Eugene Miller, or I'm sorry, Eugene O'Neill, he wrote Long Day's Journey Into Night and The Iceman Cometh. Tennessee Williams wrote The Glass Menagerie, Cat on a, t- Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, um, A Streetcar Named Desire, and like a whole bunch of other stuff. They're both, very, they're all three very prolific. I did not... And I could have missed it. I did not see Death of a Salesman on the list. I didn't see The Iceman Cometh on the list. So I think in order to kind of represent that crossover between Broadway plays, not musicals, but plays, and and Hollywood, they had to put something like this on there. It could have been Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. It could have been The Glass Menagerie because they're both made into movies as well. That I don't know. I've never seen the movies. And the most I know about The Glass Menagerie is that my drama teacher, um, our drama director in high school, always threatened to do The Glass Menagerie. And other people were like, no! But, um, so I've never read The Glass Menagerie and I've never read uh, Streetcar Named Desire. And I have seen Cat on a Hot Tin Roof a long time ago. So from what I understand from 
just reading autobi you know just reading biographies about Tennessee Williams is that most of the time this is the kind of style they're looking at it's a melodrama sort of thing amongst a small group of people it's not earth-shattering action like Lord of the Rings it's a family drama it's a group of people it's a marriage it's small um, so I think in order to get that style represented on the list, they had to put something up there. And I think A Streetcar Named Desire is just as good as any of them. Um, although it did win four Oscars, which is huge. Um, and I did like the set decoration. I thought the movie looked really nice. It wasn't black and white, so you didn't get a lot of drama from the color. But... Uh, you definitely felt the heat. You definitely felt kind of the squalor. I mean, they weren't dirt poor, but they were poor. I, I, you kind of, it's almost like when you see the apartment of the honeymooners, you know exactly what level of income they have. Their apartment definitely, and the courtyard and everything that they filmed in. Which, by the way, there was only like two scenes that didn't take place, either in the apartment or the courtyard. It was the bowling alley and the date scene. Well, and the work scene. Oh, yeah, the but work, yeah, yeah. Yeah, most of it was around just that area. So, I mean, you, you definitely got almost the, almost the claustrophobic sort of feeling um, that they must have been feeling with three people living in two rooms. Uh, it definitely came across visually. So I think it deserved to be on the list. I don't know about Top 50 either, but I haven't seen the rest of these movies. Well most of the rest of these movies that we're going to go through. So there's that. But that being said, Streetcar Named Desire, thumbs up for me. Oh, no, I, I really enjoyed the movie, especially after figuring out what it was about. And uh, thumbs up for me. Would like to see it again. All right. So next week, um, we go the other way. And we get to watch Ega about a caveman. So that's next up. I assume that's a bad movie? It's a bad movie. All right. Well, it looks like the lanterns are being lit on the streets of Royville, so that must conclude our review. That was our review of A Streetcar Named Desire. If you have any comments or questions, please put them in the comments below. If you liked this review and would like to listen to more of them, either the ones we've done already or the ones we will do in the future, please hit subscribe. And until the next movie, have a good night. Bye.